Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. I know I did that last week, but I'm just very passionate about spooky season, and um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, Hi, welcome. Here we are. Yet another spooky episode coming at you. I've created a bit of ambiance, if you will, with my pumpkin candle. I'm curled up in a blanket, and I'm in a dimly lit room. What else do you need, really, to tell a spooky story? Not much, I think. And the story that I have for you today is truly quite terrifying. I'm going to be talking about a man whose obsession with the classic horror film monsters or bad guys went way too far to the point where it became deadly. There were absolutely other factors at play here. It wasn't just a man who enjoyed horror films who started killing people because as we all know, I'm sure liking horror does not make you a bad person. For most of my life, I really, really enjoyed watching horror movies. I've only recently kind of become a bit of a wuss in that department. Um, But even still, I, I love a good spook, mostly paranormal things, because I don't love all the blood and gore. But anyway, that's enough of my yapping. Why don't we just jump right in? Daniel Gonzalez was born on June 21st, 1980, in the town of Woken in Surrey, England. His parents, Leslie Savage and Julian Gonzalez, separated when he was only six years old. Even though Daniel lived with his mother full-time, he still maintained a pretty good relationship with his father. When he was 11, Daniel's mother applied for a scholarship to a private boarding school where she worked as a cleaner, and Daniel was accepted and enrolled as a day student there. He excelled at chess, football, and theater. However, during that time, Daniel was struggling. An educational psychologist at his school diagnosed Daniel with dysgraphia and dyspraxia. Dysgraphia is a learning disability and a neurological disorder that impairs a person's ability to write, and dyspraxia is a condition that affects motor coordination. In children, it can make them seem accident-prone. It can also affect their short-term memory and make it difficult to express their thoughts clearly. Daniel was reportedly a smart kid, but he struggled a lot with making friends. He spent a lot of time on his own, and he had a dark side to him. He had thoughts and fantasies of violent action. And at age 15, Daniel was expelled from school for bad behavior. He did things like draw offensive cartoons on textbooks, and he put pins on people's chairs. It was also around that time that he began smoking marijuana and doing other drugs. Police once found Daniel with a powder that he claimed was ketamine, which is a dissociative anesthetic that has hallucinogenic effects. Along with feeling chilled out or anxious, like you might expect, ketamine can also cause memory loss, nausea, depression, and make you feel so numb that you can't feel pain. And I don't know why that effect was so shocking to me, because I've always heard people refer to ketamine as horse tranquilizer, so it quite literally is like a tranquilizer. Like, you don't feel pain properly when you've taken ketamine, so you can injure yourself without knowing it, and that's obviously dangerous. Also, mixing ketamine with other drugs or alcohol is extremely dangerous and Daniel was definitely taking a lot of drugs so I don't think it's a very far stretch to say that he was doing ketamine in an unsafe way (laughs) that seems like a silly thing to say I don't think you can do ketamine in a safe way anyway point being he was taking a lot of drugs 
Daniel was in and out of a variety of schools until he dropped out completely at 16, which was around the time that he committed his first crime. Daniel had punched and bit the ear of a bus driver after they fought about the bus fare. He wasn't charged for that crime, and his mother tried to get him help through their family doctor. However, Daniel's doctor suggested he get assessed by a social worker at a local children's center. The assessment led to a referral to get Daniel into a local drug program, which was a start. However, during these assessments, Daniel never received a psychiatric evaluation, which he definitely needed. Daniel had another run-in with the law in the spring of 1997. His mother had recently gotten him a job working at a local bank. However, after only a few days on the job, he was arrested for shoplifting. The shoplifting had been the final straw for Daniel's mother, and after that, she decided to place him in foster care with a local couple. And unsurprisingly, Daniel's foster placement didn't go well. To me, that kind of feels like a bit of a backwards solution. Because sure, your son is struggling, he's taking drugs, he's acting out, he's doing things he shouldn't be doing. But I don't understand how it was come to that the best thing for him would be to place him with an entirely new family who doesn't know him or his needs. I don't want to judge too hard because I can't even imagine how difficult living with him would be, knowing what I know about the type of person he was, but also... The problems aren't going to just go away. It's just like you're pawning them off on someone else. So I don't know. It felt a little strange to me when I heard that. Um, Anyway, yeah, it didn't go well. He continued to steal, vandalize, and take drugs. So yeah, he didn't do well. Supposedly by that time, he had taken LSD over 200 times. LSD can also trigger hallucinations. And I've also heard that taking LSD too many times can, like, fry your brain. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I also feel like taking a drug that hard that many times can't be good for your brain. Also, Daniel was definitely struggling with mental health issues that was only exacerbated by his drug use. So, just a bad combination of things. A normal person taking LSD wouldn't turn them into a killer, but if someone has a pre-existing condition like a serious mental health illness like schizophrenia, LSD can make those symptoms worse. And as we will soon find out, Daniel did in fact have schizophrenia, so he wasn't doing himself any favors. Hallucinogens like LSD and psilocybin bind to the 5-HT2A receptors and produce similar symptoms as those diagnosed with schizophrenia. And actually, antipsychotics used to treat schizophrenia are able to block the hallucinogenic effects of hallucinogenic drugs like LSD and psilocybin. And in Daniel's case, it brought out the worst in him. On top of the LSD, he was also using cocaine, ecstasy, and, like I said earlier, ketamine. His drug counselor observed Daniel was demonstrating paranoid behavior. Daniel thought that people were talking about him and that the TV was talking to him. He was also experiencing auditory hallucinations, hearing voices regularly. When he was 17, Daniel was placed on a two-year probation order that required drug counseling. It was during that time that he was finally evaluated by psychiatrists. In his first assessment in December of 1997, Daniel was prescribed an antipsychotic called thyroidazine. The doctor who prescribed this drug warned that if he continued taking other drugs, he might develop a drug-induced psychosis. But a problem with thyroidazine is the side effects of the drug can be terrible, and most patients don't want to take the medication. 
However, since he was on the medication, at least for a time, he was finally able to return to school. However, that didn't last long because in February of 98, he punched a window, which was the first incident that got him placed in a psychiatric unit for a three-week stay. Daniel's doctor there noted in his file that she believed Daniel suffered from prolonged drug-induced psychotic illness. And she disagreed with the decision to discharge him. However, when he was released, he went back to live with his foster family, where his issues with local police only continued. When he was 18, he moved out of his foster family's home and started living with a new foster caregiver. He was discharged from an outpatient care in 1998 because he didn't want their help with his drug and alcohol problem. The psychiatrist for that outpatient care wrote in his file that they didn't see the point of Daniel coming in because he wasn't going to cooperate with any kind of treatment they gave him. The only thing they could do was keep an eye on him. And it was decided by a mental health professional that Daniel was at very high risk of violence toward others and for suicide. They also said Daniel may never be able to live independently. And that's a really big claim. To say that someone is at such a high risk of violence toward others that they may never be able to live independently, clearly there's something very wrong here. But Daniel just continually was met by conflicting reports by a million different health professionals. Nobody could agree on anything. But it's clear that he was showing very troubling behavior to the point where multiple health professionals at this point are saying he shouldn't be out of this facility. But even still, he was always released and his care was pretty spotty. In another psychiatric report from 1998, a different doctor wrote that Daniel was quote-unquote probably psychotic but with sufficient insight and control over himself to make quite rational judgments about himself and the future which is a complete polar opposite from what the other health professional has said. So it just further proves my point that nobody could agree on how Daniel actually was. This psychiatric report also said that the reason for Daniel's quote-unquote mild psychosis was due to the use of ketamine and LSD. Five days later, he was taken by police to a security psychiatric hospital after striking himself with a metal saucepan and threatening his caregiver and the officers. His behavior that day was described as being like a wild animal in a cage. During this six-month period where Daniel was in the facility called Oak Tree Clinic, he was treated with antipsychotic drugs. And it was there that he finally was given the diagnosis of continuous paranoid schizophrenia. Daniel even reportedly had names for the voices in his head. He named them Katrina, Misha, Melinda, and Jenny Bean. By December of 1999, Daniel was once again living with his mother and was receiving antipsychotic injections, which were helping a lot with his symptoms. However, it was around that time that his doctor said Daniel would have to stop taking all other drugs, including cannabis and other illicit drugs, in order to keep getting injections. And unsurprisingly, Daniel chose the other drugs. And from that point on, Daniel received very inconsistent care. He stopped and started treatments, failed to turn up for appointments, received conflicting diagnoses, and was left to fend for himself. He was still hearing voices and choosing to medicate with street drugs, which led his mother to kicking him out, making Daniel homeless for a time. And throughout the next few years, that pattern would continue until his mental health care became almost non-existent. Between 1998 and 2003, Daniel saw different mental health professionals 58 times, and no one could agree on a course of action or even a diagnosis. 
Some of them did believe he was schizophrenic, but others believed Daniel had no sign of mental health issues and it may have just been a drug-induced psychosis or it was something he was faking altogether to get out of trouble. And I think that's really saying something about who he was as a person. To have that many mental health professionals confused about his diagnosis or his mental health, I feel like indicates that he was really smart and potentially was in control of at least how he presented himself. Because if he didn't want people to know that he was experiencing certain symptoms, clearly he was able to not show them. One of the last doctors he saw before the murders said he appeared to be doing very well without medication. And as we know from his rocky mental health past, that isn't the case. So that kind of further proves the point that he was, he was aware of what he was doing and was able to kind of hide things. Candace DeLong from Killer Psyche Podcast believes it was both schizophrenia with drug-induced psychosis, which was a really terrible and dangerous combination. And shout out to Candace because I got a lot of really great information from their episode on Daniel Gonzalez, so thank you for that. But by 2004, Daniel was once again living with his mother. He had never had a job, unless you count that job at the bank for a few days, but I don't really think that counts, and he completely isolated himself. Throughout the years, Daniel displayed signs of growing violence. He damaged property, assaulted police officers, and served a jail sentence. Daniel had always had dark and violent fantasies of hurting other people or himself, but around that time, he became more vocal about those fantasies. He spent almost all of his time alone playing video games or binge-watching horror movies or reading the magazine Freddy Krueger's Nightmares. His two favorite characters were Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees. And like I mentioned earlier, Daniel thought his television was talking to him, so he believed that these movie monsters were telling him to kill. His mother could see that Daniel's mental state had been unraveling. Some days were worse than others, but she knew something was wrong. He had begun acting out in new ways. He would punch himself in the face until he gave himself a black eye, and he tried to break his nose by throwing himself down the staircase. Just two days before his killing spree began, Daniel ran naked and screaming through the streets of his hometown in Surrey. Daniel's mother's partner had gone out looking for him, but he couldn't find Daniel until he came home and found him pacing around the kitchen and talking to himself in a strange voice as he was surrounded with knives. That is a pretty chilling image. If this is your partner's son, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, oh my god, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Or are you like, this is all fine. This is par for the course. I love her and I love him by default. I feel like that would be hard to love. I'd be terrified, personally. The summer before that, Daniel's mother had found a letter that Daniel had written while he was spending time with his father in Spain, saying he needed severe help with his mental health and was basically begging the mental health facility that he was writing to to help him get on the right medication. Daniel never sent that letter, but after his mother found it, she sent it. And it's surprising to me that even after Daniel begging for help, he was only admitted as an outpatient despite his requests. It's also telling that he was aware enough that he was very violent and not doing well that he himself was asking for help, and yet he still wasn't given it. So it's confusing. 
Not only did he not get the mental health help that he needed, but after the streaking incident, his mother went to the police and asked them for help, but they never even came out to their house. A few days after the incident, his mother wrote a letter to social services asking, quote, does my son have to commit a murder to get help? And it was only two days after that, that Daniel did in fact murder. September 15th, 2004, Daniel had decided he was going to follow through with killing someone, which was something the voices in his head had been telling him to do for a while. He waited for his mother to leave for work before picking his weapon of choice, which was a knife from his kitchen. Jason used a machete, and Freddy Krueger had a glove with blades on it, so to Daniel, he had to use a knife just like in the horror movies because he was obsessed and fantasized about it. Soon after picking the knife he would use, Daniel left his home in search of a person to kill. He went to a nearby park with the sole intention of stalking people and killing them. Anyone who he came in contact with was a potential victim. Not long after getting to the park, Daniel saw the Kings, a couple in their 60s who had been out in the park taking a walk together. Peter and Janice King had been walking along the path, not thinking anything of the man who was about to pass them. And as Daniel approached the couple, Daniel screamed, I'm going to kill you, as he jumped at Peter King with the knife in his hand. He put the knife under Peter King's throat as his wife watched in horror. But Daniel wasn't prepared for Peter King to fight back. Peter was able to wrestle Daniel away from him and push him to the ground. And even though Daniel was the one holding the knife, he got up and said, quote, I'm sorry, I'm a schizophrenic, I can't help myself, and then ran away. Very confusing interaction. Daniel had definitely realized that Peter was far too big for him to take down, and he wasn't expecting it. He was expecting this older man to go down without a fight, but that just simply wasn't the case. And then he used his diagnosis as an excuse. As if that makes it any more understandable for just randomly attacking a man and his wife in the park. And I want to be so clear, just because someone has schizophrenia does not make them dangerous, even though Daniel would like to say that. It's something like 98% of people with schizophrenia are absolutely not dangerous at all, which makes so much sense to me. But he was treating his diagnosis as an excuse. To Daniel, the reason he wasn't successful was due to the size of his knife, so he needed an upgrade. Also, his ego had a bit of a hit when he was wrestled away by an older man and his wife, so he needed to make sure the next time he didn't fail. Daniel went to a hardware store and pulled a large butcher knife off the shelf, one that was reminiscent of the one Michael Myers used in Halloween. The kind of knife that would cause fear in whoever he attacked next, which was what he was going after. He wanted to feel in control and feared. He also bought a hockey mask. What I want to know is what that cashier who checked Daniel out that day was thinking. A creepy guy walks in and only buys a huge knife and a hockey mask. I don't think so. Personally, I might call the cops. I don't fault this person for not doing that. Maybe it was just for a photo shoot. You can give him the benefit of the doubt, but it clearly wasn't. It was for killing, and it looked that way. (laughs) It certainly looked that way. In the hockey mask, Daniel felt like he could truly transform himself into Jason and feel what he felt as he killed his victims. 
Armed with his large knife and his new hockey mask, Daniel prepared to strike again. It had only been two hours since he had attacked Peter King, but he was determined to kill someone. He hid in a tree on a pathway and waited for his next unsuspecting victim to pass him. It didn't take long before Daniel spotted his next victim, and to him, it was perfect. 73-year-old Marie Harding was walking down the path on her way back from visiting her daughter. Marie had been walking home in the middle of the day, so she had no reason to suspect anything was about to happen. Daniel, having just lost his battle with Peter King, picked Marie because he knew he would be able to sneak up behind her, and if need be, he could overcome an old lady. Marie was a retired schoolteacher who then worked in a ticket office for a football club in Sussex. As Daniel watched from the bushes through his hockey mask, his confidence only grew. He was feeling exactly what Jason would have felt, stalking his prey through the holes of a hockey mask. Daniel approached from the bushes as Marie passed him and snuck up behind her. He grabbed her and stabbed her in the back and slit her throat before running off. Marie was found later with her handbag and purse by her side. And that's what made these murders so scary. Daniel didn't rob these people. He didn't want anything from them other than to kill them. And what a horrifying thing to do. To sit in the bushes and wait for an unsuspecting old lady who's coming home from hanging out with her daughter to pass you. That way you can literally stab her in the back. That is like out of a horror movie. That doesn't happen in real life. But it did. It's just awful. After killing Marie, he decided he had had enough for one day. So he went home and locked himself in his room. He was euphoric from the murder. And one of the first things he did was write notes to himself, referring to himself as Zippy, which was a nickname he had for himself, promising he would continue killing. He also wrote about how much he enjoyed the murders, saying it was, quote, one of the best things I've done in my life, and that he wanted to become a famous serial killer. He also compared himself to Freddy Krueger. Later that evening, Daniel's mother returned home from work and found Daniel locked in his room talking to himself. She was worried about him, but had no idea that her son had done what she feared the most. The only sign of the horrors her son had committed was a small dent in the sink where Daniel had stabbed it with the kitchen knife that he used in his first attack. But even if she saw the little dent, there was no way of knowing the atrocities her son had just committed. The next morning, Daniel got up early to reward himself with a trip to the pub. He was celebrating his kill and drank and took drugs until he was very intoxicated. The drugs on top of the voices in Daniel's head was, as we know, a really terrible combination. The drugs were actually enhancing Daniel's mental illness, so the voices he was already hearing were most likely even louder now that he was under the influence. That evening after leaving the pub, Daniel set out to find his next victim. As he walked, he came across another pub that had been closing, and he saw a man leaving the pub. That man was pub landlord 46-year-old Kevin Malloy. Kevin was different than Daniel's other victims in that he was not elderly, nor was he small. But being that Daniel was in a very altered state, he felt like he could take on anyone. And although Kevin was bigger than Daniel, he had been drinking as well and wasn't prepared for a surprise attack. He was also described as a gentle giant who avoided confrontation. He had been planning to move to Ireland to live with his mother. 
As Kevin approached Daniel, who had been very clearly drunk, he asked Daniel if he was okay. Daniel would later say to police that during this interaction, his head, quote, had been going all mad and he had to murder someone then. He pounced at Kevin and began repeatedly stabbing him with his large knife. During the surprise attack, all Kevin could get out was, what are you doing? All that question did was provoke Daniel. He stabbed Kevin multiple times all over his body. Kevin was found later with stab wounds to his abdomen, chest, neck, and even his face. Seeing Kevin on the ground laying in a pool of blood, Daniel was ready for his next victim. He wasn't just focused on someone he knew he could overtake, like a small or elderly person. Now he was on the hunt for whoever he could get his hands on. Daniel then took to the street to find his next victim. It was the very early hours of the morning, and middle-aged couple Kumis and Kristala Constantinou were asleep upstairs in their bedroom. Kristala had been woken up when she heard a thud come from downstairs. It isn't known what prompted Daniel to choose the Constantinou's home, but it's believed it was just the first house he came across with an easy access point. As Daniel had come through their window downstairs, Kristala had woken up and had also woken up her husband to see what the noise was. As Daniel rummaged through the couple's kitchen, he came across the next knife he would use. Mr. Constantinou went downstairs to find Daniel in his kitchen holding a knife and ready to kill him. Daniel jumped on Mr. Constantinou, and what followed was a very vicious battle between the two men. Daniel managed to stab him in his arm, however, he wasn't going down without a fight. They hit each other, there was biting, scratching, and that's when Mrs. Constantinou came downstairs to find her husband fighting for his life, and she frantically ran to call for help. Mr. Constantinou then managed to grab a chair and used it to hit Daniel with it, thankfully wounding him. And once again, Daniel realized that he had met his match and fled the scene. So thankfully, both of them survived the attack. And again, that is something straight out of a horror movie because it's just the trope of someone breaking in late at night and then coming to kill you is classic horror movie. So he was really going after it. He was really doing the whole horror movie thing. But thankfully, he failed at that one. We truly love to hear it. But after the second failed murder attempt, Daniel promised himself that he wouldn't let it happen again. He continued walking the streets until morning, when he walked up to the home of Derek and Jean Robinson. Derek was 75 years old and was a retired pediatrician who worked with underprivileged families, and his wife Jean was 68 and was a retired music teacher who had a long career with Christian aid. I mean, come on. Why does he have to pick the best, nicest people to kill? He shouldn't kill anyone, obviously. But like, a pediatrician who worked with underprivileged families and a retired music teacher? Like, come on. <laughs> like, it's awful. These two were great people who were just sitting at their table that morning, eating breakfast together as they had done so many times before. Like all of Daniel's victims, the Robinsons were chosen at random and were completely unsuspecting of what was coming their way. Daniel came to their door and rang the bell. When the couple answered it, they found Daniel on their front steps covered in blood, which led them to assume that he was in need of help, not that they should be scared of him. Derek Robinson asked Daniel if he was okay, and Daniel took a few steps forward into their home. He immediately attacked the couple in their doorway. He killed Derek Robinson almost immediately, 
And Daniel later said once he killed Derek, he felt bad for his wife, Jean, and knew he had to kill her quickly as well. He stabbed her in the chest and neck as quickly as he could, which did kill Jean not long after. I can't imagine thinking, oh, I feel bad for this. I have to kill her now. But why would I understand? I think that's probably a good thing. Instead of fleeing the scene, Daniel decided to stay in the Robinsons' home and went upstairs to take a shower since now he was covered in more blood. As Daniel was in the shower, an interior decorator had been scheduled to come over to the Robinsons' home that day and had a set of keys which he used to enter the home where he found Derek and Jean dead in their doorway. He was horrified at what he had found, but after the initial shock, he realized that he heard the shower running upstairs. Instead of this interior decorator immediately running out of there and calling the police, he decided the best idea was for him to walk toward the sound of the running water. And this feels like something truly out of a horror film, when you're just yelling at the screen for the person to stop doing the idiotic thing they're doing and get the hell out of there. I'm sorry, I'm sure he is a lovely person who just made a silly mistake, but it's giving the first person to die in a horror movie. That is not the behavior of someone who lives in a horror movie. So he, he didn't leave the house. He walked all the way upstairs and even opened the bathroom door to find a naked Daniel Gonzalez standing in the bathroom. Daniel, who was completely not expecting someone to intrude on his shower, looked at this man in disbelief. Thankfully, instead of killing him, Daniel grabbed his clothes and said, quote, Sorry about that, mate as he snuck past him down the stairs and out of the house. What do you mean? Sorry about that, mate. <laughs> it's not funny, but like, what an absurd thing to say. Daniel had just committed his fourth murder and had a trail of six victims. But now that he was out on the street once again, he decided he needed to get some help for his bleeding wounds. So he took a bus to a local medical center and got treated. He gave a fake name and told the doctors that he was cut from broken glass and that the blood on his clothing was his own. And he must have been pretty convincing because the police were never called and he was treated and sent on his way. So Daniel basically felt like he was invincible at that point because he had gone so many places and seen so many people and none of them had been able to stop him. At that point, he went back out to hunt for his next victim, completely unaware that by that time, the police had been looking for whoever killed the Robinsons. Daniel made his way into the Tottenham Court Road tube station and went up to the counter to buy a ticket. He was still covered in blood and handed the woman at the desk money that had also been stained with blood. So she promptly called the police, thank you, and since every police officer was out looking for the Robinsons' murderer, Daniel was quickly arrested under suspicion for the double murder. September 17th, 2004, two days after his killing spree began, 24-year-old Daniel Gonzalez was finally brought into the police station. When the police brought him in, they were certainly suspicious that he had something to do with the double murder, but they weren't sure it was him. However, it didn't take long before they realized that Daniel was extremely violent and unpredictable. The officer who had been walking him through the station got hit in the face, like right in the mouth by Daniel. And what made the attack so interesting was that it was completely unprovoked. He had no impulse control. He just did it. 
And then when the officer reacted, he said he was sorry. This is a very strange pattern by Daniel. He attacks someone in a very vicious and violent way, and then sometimes he apologizes. Make that make sense. Once questioning began, Daniel did admit to the murders. However, he didn't take responsibility for his actions. He blamed everything on the voices in his head. He told police he had a miserable life. He didn't have any other option, and this was what he was supposed to do. He stated that it wasn't first-degree murder, but it was manslaughter. One of the investigators questioning Daniel said they found him very manipulative and deceptive, so he wasn't buying Daniel's story. As time went on in the interview, Daniel told police he wanted to know how it felt to be Freddy Krueger. He admitted that he had this need to kill. He wanted to feel powerful and be in control, and he didn't see any other solution to achieving that. The only answer he could see came from watching slasher films day in and day out. There was also another unnamed man who unknowingly survived Daniel. He said, quote, I was walking down these alleyways with a knife, waiting to carve up someone. The knife was six inches long. It was like a butcher's knife used to carve up bits of meat. I was going to the first place I could kill someone. He then followed the man, but didn't end up attacking him since the man had turned onto a main road. And oh my god, what a lucky turn that man made. Daniel added that he felt like he was on a mission to kill as many people as possible. He also told police that after committing these murders, he felt clean, orgasmic, and he washed all the crap out of his life. So that's pretty clear. That's a pretty clear confession. He's like, yep, I killed all these people and I even enjoyed it to the point where I was orgasmic. What a descriptor. That's messed up. Ironically, when the media got a hold of Daniel's story, they quickly named him the Freddy Krueger killer, which kind of sucks because that was exactly what he wanted, to be remembered for these murders just like Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees were. So how about instead of Freddy Krueger killer, we just call him Little Bitch Boy? I think that fits better. Daniel was brought to trial in February of 2006. He pled guilty to manslaughter, and his defense team tried desperately to convince the court that his actions were beyond his control, that it was all just the act of someone else in his mind, and he couldn't appreciate the difference between right and wrong. They claimed he was a paranoid schizophrenic who was denied proper care. And while I kind of agree with the part where he was denied proper care, that doesn't mean that he's not responsible. The prosecution disagreed with the defense, obviously, and claimed that he was psychotic and a drug addict, and the combination of the two drove him to commit the murders. But based off of everything Daniel said to his victims, to the police, and to mental health professionals, it was clear that he knew the difference between right and wrong and good and bad. The jury heard Daniel's first words to the investigators who initially questioned him, which helped them with their decision. He had said, quote, I just thought about doing it, man. What would it be like just to be maybe Freddy Krueger or something like that just for one day? So that was pretty clear to them. They believed Daniel Gonzalez was simply bored and frustrated with existence. The jury agreed with the prosecution that Daniel was responsible for the four murders, and although he had mental health issues, he also had a clear desire to kill. He had free will, and he was responsible. It only took them 50 minutes to come back with a guilty verdict. On March 16, 2006, he received six life sentences for his killing spree. 
which feels like a fair sentence to me. Thank you, judge. It was actually speculated that Daniel staged his defense, potentially writing entries in his journal to support the defense, and was lying about his symptoms to avoid responsibility. I don't know if that's true or not, but it feels like it's in the realm of possibility. So who's to say? Either way, he was sent to a very high-security mental facility and was considered one of the hospital's most dangerous patients. His violence continued at the hospital, lunging at doctors and staff, and he even attacked his mother and grandmother when they visited. He also terrified other patients by reenacting how he stabbed his victims, and he attempted to take his own life a few times by chewing his veins and arteries in his arm. During his incarceration, Daniel had told one of his doctors that right before the murder spree, he had attended a rave where he took crystal meth. And it was this doctor's opinion that something happened in Daniel's mind to tip him over the edge once he took the crystal meth. Daniel had always had violent fantasies and wanted to kill someone, but it wasn't actually a reality for Daniel until after the crystal meth incident. Crystal meth is associated with violent behavior, and apparently users with mental health illnesses sometimes find their symptoms worsened while using meth, which seems like kind of an overarching theme here. Mental illness and drugs, unless they're prescribed to you, do not mix well. But clearly, Daniel did not care. So Daniel's history of schizophrenia, coupled with the use of crystal meth, may have been the last straw in his already fragile mind. Daniel also said that during these raves, they would listen to a music known as Doomcore, which had samples of people screaming and other disturbing noises. So knowing that Daniel believed that the TV was talking to him, it's very possible that this Doomcore music was also talking to Daniel and saying God only knows what to him. Two years after his sentence on August 9th, 2007, after three failed suicide attempts, Daniel took his own life. And that was the end, making his very last victim himself. Daniel was clearly a very troubled young man who needed professional help. But one, he didn't get that help. And two, even when he was given some kind of help, he didn't always follow through with the treatments. He preferred taking drugs over getting help until it was too late. Then he wanted help and he didn't get it. So it's overall tragic. It is very tragic and terrifying to think of the things that he did, knowing that he was just walking around with the sole intention of killing people in the middle of the day, like broad daylight, which feels way crazier to me than someone walking around at night with the intention of killing someone. Because at least at night, you're kind of more aware of your surroundings. I feel like if I was walking through a park in the middle of the day, I would not be expecting someone to attack me. And they weren't, which is why it was so deadly. He just ran up to someone and killed them. Thankfully, multiple people managed to survive the attacks, but it was truly like something out of a horror film, which was by design. That's what he wanted. And like I said in the beginning, I don't think that watching those kinds of movies makes anyone bad or dangerous, but it was the combination of severe mental illness a lot of really repeated terrible drug use and, you know, watching those movies and playing video games and reading about it in magazines and the fantasies and all the things that ultimately escalated to a really terrible outcome. I unfortunately don't have any more information on the survivors of Daniel Gonzalez. 
I hope they're all doing well, because what a terrifying thing to come across in your life. But that is the story of Daniel Gonzalez, also known as the Freddy Krueger killer. Shockingly enough, I actually have not seen Nightmare on Elm Street. I really wanted to watch it before recording this episode. Not that it had really anything to do with the episode, but it was it's kind of crazy that I've never seen it. So I think that's my homework. I think that I'm going to watch Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, the classic ones. Um, just because it's close to Halloween and that's kind of what people do. But also Over the Garden Wall. If you haven't seen it, it's very cute. It's a cartoon and it's lighthearted. So actually, instead of me saying that I'm going to go watch a bunch of horror movies that prompted all these killings, I'm going to say I'm going to watch Over the Garden Wall because that's good vibes. Anyways, I think we've had enough of this craziness for one day. Why don't I tell you my good thing? My good thing is that I have chosen my Halloween costume and I am very excited because it's pretty silly. Alex and I will be coordinating in a silly kind of way, uh, and I'm excited to share it with you. I'm not going to share it just yet. I guess I'm going to gatekeep, if you will, but at some point I'll post it on my Instagram, so check that out if you want. That and Alex and I are taking a really fun weekend trip to a place that has this really huge Christmas store, and it's going to be really beautiful because uh, the leaves are all changing, and I cannot wait to shop for Christmas items and also eat fudge and cheese. So it's going to be a good day. I hope you all are enjoying your fall as much as I am. Get yourself a pumpkin treat of some sort. You deserve it. That's your homework. <laughs> Anyways... Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out the bonus episode that came out recently and vote on the next one that's going to be put up soon, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that's happened to you and you'd like to hear it on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to us at knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We've been getting a bunch and I really love it. So send them in if you have them. We have a TikTok that is on Today Podcast and a Twitter that is on Today Podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. Yeah.